Soon after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, as recorded in Mark 11, he went to the temple, drove out the money changers and their customers who had made the place a den of thieves. That story is sandwiched between the cursing of the fig tree and two stories that together indicate that the temple itself is cursed. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was a prelude to the closing of the temple. And since that time, Jesus has been teaching in the temple and encouraging, encountering challenges from various religious authorities. And his time in the temple concludes with the passage before us today. There are two sections to this passage. First, a warning about the scribes. And second, an observation about a widow. And what might appear to be two isolated episodes are actually interconnected and woven into the fabric of Mark's story of Jesus. Grasping some of these connections will help us give a fresh understanding of this portion of the word. So we will examine this passage as a study in contrast between, first, some unscrupulous scribes. Hard to say ten times fast. Some unscrupulous scribes. And second, an exemplary widow. Back in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus came declaring the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus continues to do that here in chapter 12 as he offers further teaching about the nature of kingdom discipleship. And there are lessons to be learned from the scribes and this widow by 21st century disciples of Jesus. So let us give our attention to this that we may learn from our master. We begin by considering some unscrupulous scribes in verses 38 through 40. Here again, that passage. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Contrast and conflict have marked Jesus' relationship with the scribes throughout Mark's gospel. During his first public ministry at the synagogue in Capernaum, the people remarked that he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The authority of the scribes looked meager when contrasted to the authority of Jesus in the eyes of the people. And it is not surprising that the scribes subsequently sought to exercise their position as religious leaders to hurl accusations and cast aspersions on the ministry of Jesus. Now, I rehearsed these encounters a few weeks ago, and we won't do so again today, but here we are at the scene of Jesus' last public ministry. And once again, scribes figure prominently. This time, Jesus is teaching in the temple and provides a warning against the scribes. Now, in the immediately preceding verses that we have already considered, Jesus questioned the adequacy of the scribes' understanding of their statement that the Christ is the Son of David. That was a matter of biblical interpretation, and and Jesus exposed the scribal position as an insufficient view of the Christ, of the Messiah. They failed to reckon that the Christ is not only David's son, but also David's Lord. And Jesus called on people to have a better doctrine than that of the scribes. Errors in doctrine have a way of having an impact outside the strictly doctrinal realm. 
they bleed over into practical living. This accords with Richard Weaver's dictum, ideas have consequences. Doctrinal deficiency usually shows up in practical problems in other areas of life. And the goal of believers is to maintain both orthodoxy, that is right doctrine, and orthopraxis, that is right practice or right living. You can't really have one without the other, and attention needs to be given to both. The scribes had a problem in terms of orthodoxy, and Jesus now shows that they also have a problem in terms of orthopraxis. They are not living the way they should before God. The problems in practice took several forms. First, they they used their status as religious leaders to seek out and revel in the honor of men. Notice what Jesus says they desire. They go about in long robes. They get greetings in the marketplace. They get the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts. Now, in and of themselves, none of these things is inherently sinful. But the scribes used what could be legitimate for illegitimate, selfish purposes. Now, scribes wore distinctive garments. That kind of thing is not uncommon in the Bible or even in subsequent church history. Clerical garb functions as a kind of uniform for clergy. It's taken different forms at different times and in different places. But it appears that the scribes turned this into an ostentatious display as a way of seeking honor for themselves. We're not certain exactly what these long robes were, but some scholars believe that the scribes wore garments that were ordinarily only used during religious festivals not on an everyday basis. And in some way, their mode of dress drew attention to themselves, and it was attention that they loved to receive. One form of such attention was receiving special greetings in the marketplaces. Again, this is more than the usual greeting anyone might receive. They wanted deferential greetings. They wanted the praise of men. Matthew's account expands on Mark's at this point, and adds that the scribes loved it when men addressed them as rabbi, rabbi. And this set them apart, and in their minds above others around them. And such deferential greetings fed their inflated sense of themselves. They also sought out perks that came with their office, getting seats of honor in the synagogue or at feasts. Now, it is one thing humbly to accept such honor when it happens to come your way. It is another thing to seek it out, to view it as your right, and to allow it to feed pride and arrogance. And this is how the scribes in Jesus' day lived. They also were greedy and vicious, using religion as a cloak for avarice. Jesus says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Now, widows at this time were among the most vulnerable members of society. They had no inherent rights. They were completely dependent upon either their oldest son or their father if he was still living. But if they had neither son nor father, they were dependent upon the charity of the broader community. And it seems scribes regularly used their positions of trust to take advantage of widows, some of whom had great wealth. And you heard in our passage from the prophecy of Malachi that that was one of the things that the Lord was coming in judgment against Israel for. 
for taking advantage of widows. So some of these widows had wealth, but that might have been only before they got entangled with the scribes. The scribes' pretentious prayers provided just the right atmosphere to devour the widows' houses by bilking them for all they were worth. We see the same things today sometimes, don't we? There are religious hucksters in every age who use faith to perpetrate fraud, and widows and the elderly are typical targets. It is not hard to imagine what the scribes in Jesus' day would have done with access to cable TV or the internet, because we see many following in their footsteps. Yes, religious leaders like the scribes are still among us. And Jesus makes clear what awaits such religious charlatans. These will receive greater condemnation. Their coming judgment is serious, and it is certain, and it will be heavy. What was the basic problem with the scribes? These self-proclaimed experts in the law had rejected the priorities of the law. Now, children, you can help us review what these priorities are. Who can spell the word joy for me? What's the first letter in joy? J? What's the second letter? O? What's the third letter? Y? Now, the word joy actually can remind us of what our priorities are supposed to be. What is most important? J is Jesus. After Jesus, what's important? Others. And after others, yourself. And so the priorities the Bible teaches us is the most important thing in life should be Jesus and serving Jesus. And then we should see how can we bless other people. And then finally, of course, we have blessing upon ourselves. But that's not what we seek for first. But what did the scribes do? Did they look to Jesus first? Did they look to others second and only last to themselves? No. They cared only about themselves. And that was their basic problem. Jesus said that his followers were to be marked by self-denial in the service of God. And these scribes were experts in self-promotion. Now, not all scribes were this way. Jesus had earlier met a scribe who wasn't far from the kingdom of God. But he was exceptional. And his exceptional character stands out when seen in comparison with what Jesus says about scribes in general. They they were supposed to be respected religious leaders, and Jesus has to warn people to beware of them. The general attitudes and actions of the scribes provide a study in contrast with the next character we meet. So we turn from unscrupulous scribes to an exemplary widow. We begin reading in verses 41 and 42. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. Now, we're told that Jesus is seated. That is the posture of a Jewish teacher. The temple treasury was located in the court of the women, and it was here that people brought monetary offerings for the work of the temple. And Jesus is watching them as they come in, as as they make their contributions. And we're told that he sees many who were rich put in much. But contrasted with the many rich is the one poor widow. And we're told she threw in two mites, 
which makes a quadrans. Now, we're not familiar, of course, with the coinage of the day, so let me explain it. The mite, the lepton in Greek, was the smallest coin issued at that time. Now, you've probably heard of the denarius. We hear about the denarius throughout the gospel and several times. A denarius was equal to a day's wage for a laborer. The mite was equal to one sixty-fourth of a denarius. It was very, very little indeed. It had very, very little monetary value. Two mites did not make much money. Maybe just enough to buy a little bit of bread and nothing else. And that is the pittance the widow puts into the treasury. That is the scene Jesus observes. And now he picks up his role as a teacher. Verse 43, so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now we have three indications in Jesus' words that constitute that show they constitute authoritative teaching about his kingdom. As we've already noted in verse 41, we're told that he was seated, and this was the posture of a Jewish teacher. Now we're told that he called his disciples to himself, which is something he did on numerous occasions as he prepared to teach them. And finally, he begins by saying, Amen, I say to you. Now, that, that word amen is a Greek word that comes over from the Hebrew. It's rather weakly translated in the New King James as assuredly. It occurs 12 other times in Mark, significant times. And to see how these three factors come together on previous occasions, listen to these words found in chapter 9. And Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly, that is, amen, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Whenever Jesus sits down, calls the twelve to himself, and says, Amen, I say to you, he is engaged in giving important teaching about the kingdom. So we need to learn what important teaching he gives here in verses 43 and 44. Jesus is not simply making a matter-of-fact observation about the foot traffic in the temple. Jesus begins by telling his disciples, Amen, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Now, if we stop there, this sounds wrong on the face of it. Hasn't Jesus just watched many rich people put much into the treasury, while this widow put in just two of the smallest coins of the realm? How can these two little coins somehow be more than all the contributions of the rich people put together. Now, this is one of those sayings of Jesus that is designed to get readers' readers attention or his listeners' attention. And I'm sure he had their attention when he continues and explains, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, 
her whole livelihood. And now we can reflect on how her gift was in some way more than all the others. We might think the clue is in the different starting point of the givers. The rich give out of abundance, and she gives out of poverty. This is true. She surely felt the cost of giving more than the rich who could easily afford to give much and still have plenty to spare. She gave all. If you think about the fact that she was down to her last two little coins, it would have been amazing even to give one to the temple treasury and just keep one for herself. No one would have questioned the sincerity of such an act. But she gives both. An amazing example of sacrificial giving. And this is often as far as interpretation goes with this text. The widow who gave her last two mites shines forth as a great example for church stewardship campaigns. Now there's an element of truth here. But if we stop at this point, I fear we miss Jesus' main point. After all, he is engaged in authoritative teaching about the kingdom. Is this primarily a lesson of kingdom economics? I don't think his primary concern has to do with finances at all. But it has to do with what the widow gave. Our English text tells us she put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And there are two words here that emerge as significant when we consider them in the Greek original. The first is the word all. It is not the same word in Greek that is translated all at the beginning of this verse, for they all did this. It's a different word. It's one that was used seven times in Jesus' encounter with the exceptional scribe. Jesus told the scribe, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And in response, the scribe spoke of the priority to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength. And we see this Greek word for all that figured so prominently in Jesus' recent interaction with the scribe, we suspect that here it may be significant. And that suspicion is confirmed when we consider the last word in verse 44. Translated livelihood in the New King James, it is the Greek word bios, which means life. It's that root from which we get our term biology, the study of life. You see, what Jesus says is the widow put in all that she had her whole life. When Jesus warned the people about the scribes, it is clear that the scribes had shirked the requirements of the law. They weren't giving their all to God. They were too busy loving themselves to care about God or neighbor. But what a contrast we see in this poor widow who gives all, who gives her whole life to God. And this is the essence of kingdom discipleship. What has Jesus been teaching the disciples? Back in chapter 8, he said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's 8, 34, and 35. And then in chapter 10, verses 44 and 45, Jesus says, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Why does Jesus authoritatively call his disciples unto himself for a time of teaching and then point out to them the actions of the poor widow? It is not because she was just an example of good stewardship, though she was. It was because in giving all, in giving her whole life, she was a model of kingdom discipleship. She was willing to lose her life to save it. She was willing to be the last and the least. She loved the Lord her God with all that she had. Yes, she was a model for the disciples. And don't miss the fact that she is a woman. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus didn't have a high view of women. Think of the strength of some of the women as characters in Mark's gospel. The woman with the issue of blood sought Jesus out, breaking social taboos in her effort to go to him, and Jesus responded by commending her faith and healing her. The Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter refused to take no for an answer from Jesus, humbling herself by accepting the designation of a dog so that she can still plead for mercy. And Jesus commends her for her faithful words and delivers her daughter of the demon. And here in chapter 12, we have the simple act of complete self-giving by a poor widow. And Jesus responds by calling her to his disciples' attention as an example of true discipleship. And we'll see another such exemplary woman in chapter 14. Jesus repeatedly points to women as models of faith and faithfulness. Christianity, at its best, has always followed in the footsteps in promoting honor and respect for women. And when it fails at this point, as it often has in the past and sometimes does today, it is not being true to Jesus. And men, if we fail at this point, if we develop condescending attitudes toward women, then we are departing from the way of Jesus. But this poor Woman pictures even more than model discipleship. In giving her whole life, she anticipates the coming passion of Jesus who came to give his life as a ransom for many. In her self-giving, the poor widow foreshadows the greater self-giving of the Christ, the pouring out of his life upon the cross to secure salvation for his people. Jesus pointed his disciples to the widow. Look at the widow. And let her point you to Jesus. So on which path are you walking? Are you walking the way of the scribes? Living to exalt yourself even at the expense of others? Might you even use religious piety as a cloak for self-serving? Jesus warned the crowd to beware of the scribes, and I warn you not to adopt the ways of the scribes. Theirs is not the way of the kingdom. But there is an alternative. Are you walking the way of the poor widow, giving your all to the Lord, giving your whole life to him? Now, you won't do so perfectly. He gave his life to you for you for this very reason, because you can't do it perfectly. And by faith, you rest in his righteousness, not your own. But the way of discipleship is still the way of the cross. Jesus still calls his followers to deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow him. He isn't interested in your money for the sake of money. 
You can give like scribes in a show of ostentation, and the act is spiritually worthless. But if you give like the widow gave her two mites, that is, if you give your very life to Jesus, then he will be pleased. And then you will be able to enter into the joy of the kingdom. This text in script is not in Scripture to extol somehow virtues of poverty. It is not in Scripture to provide fodder for fundraising campaigns. These interrelated stories of the scribes and the widow are in Scripture to warn you against living for yourself and to show you that joy in the kingdom comes to the one who gives himself or herself wholeheartedly to Jesus. The scribes were not willing to lose their lives, and so they never found true life. If you live for yourself alone, you'll never find true life either. I would urge you to follow in the footsteps of the poor widow and find true life by giving your all to the Lord. Let us pray.